If you're a guest here today, just a special welcome for, to you. We've been walking through a series titled The Journey of a Lifetime. You'll notice that on the screen there. And it's about a, a spiritual journey to maturity in one part of it, but there's really a second part of it. If we call ourselves disciples in Christ, we are called to be moved toward a maturity that's influencing other people influencers within the kingdom of God, in, in terms of the kingdom of God, walking alongside of somebody who's far from Jesus, walk with them toward Jesus and moving them toward spiritual maturity. Now, there's a theme verses that we've been having, and I want to just put that again on the screen. I'm hoping you're getting to the point where you're memorizing these. It says, him in Colossians 1, 28 and 29, him we proclaim warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all of his energy that he powerfully works within me. Now one of the things that we've been doing is we've been walking through a text from 1 John chapter 2 because it describes the movement from a child in one's faith, not physical age child, but a, a child in the faith to a young man or young woman in the faith, and then the call to move to become a father and mother in the, in the faith. And there are distinct qualities, really, that apply to all of those categories. And we've been digging into this middle category, these pillars that are needed to become, walk toward this place of becoming a young man and or young woman in the faith. And it comes out of 1 John chapter 2, and I'm going to put that on the screen here for you. It says this, I am writing to you, young men, um, because you have overcome the evil one. Now, there's that first phase of the first pillar that the idea there that a young man is beginning to understand Satan, sin, how that works and how it fits together. And they're resisting that. But verse 14 goes on. I write to you, young men, because you are strong. This idea of spiritual strength is taking place. And we talked about this the last couple of Sundays in the idea that it's deeply tied to our identity in Christ and how we view ourselves in terms of our understanding with, with God and with Jesus. But there's a third one. And the word of God abides in you and you've overcome the evil one. This third, phase, this third pillar of abiding the word abiding in our hearts and lives. Well, I want to put another passage that really points to the necessity of this. And i got to change it. It's Ephesians chapter 4 there. It should be 4 instead of 3. But Paul is writing to the church. And look at what he says here about spiritual maturity. So Christ himself gave the apostles and the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors and teachers to equip his people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up. Now, you'll notice it's, that's part of the goal, but there's more to this goal. Until we all reach unity in the faith, there's the unity goal, and in the knowledge of the Son of God. This is about Jesus. But look at the result of the maturity. Verse 14, then we will be no longer be infants. Now, that's spiritual infancy. That's not physical age infants. Tossed back and forth by the waves blowing here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and the craftiness of people in deceitful scheming. It's living with wisdom, 
Because at times when you look at people, they can go back and forth and, and certain topics and Bible studies come along and it's like going this direction and this direction. And, and, and Paul is writing, no, we want stability. But keep going in verse 15, instead speaking the truth in love. We will grow to become in every aspect, and here's the mature body of him who is the head that is Christ. The call for spiritual maturity in our lives. It's God's will for our life. And if we claim to be a follower of Jesus, we are to move towards spiritual maturity and participate in walking with other people toward maturity. And folks, that's not just our family. I think we default to, well, it's about my kids, and go, no, it's going beyond that. Paul looked at everyone, not just his family. But this phrase this morning, the word of God abides in you. There's really two aspects or two parts that we got to dig and unfold here this morning. The first one is about the word itself. What's important? What is the word of God? Because I'll say it this way. No word of God, no spiritual maturity. But the second issue is the word abide. What does it mean practically? What does it mean that the word of God abides in us? And that's where we're going to go next week, just to warn you, that's, that's where we're headed. But let me fill you in the blank there, because this, there's this pillar, really in terms of our maturity, and here's how I put it, the pillar of maturing, the word of God. A spiritual child must permit the word of God to become a lens in which we know God, in how we view ourselves, how we view the world, and live our lives in this world. The word is important in all of those aspects, even the way we view ourselves. Now, some of you may not know this, but we are a part of the Evangelical Free Church of America, it's a denomination. It's headquartered in Bloomington, actually, is the national headquarters. But I, we have a doctrinal statement, and I want to put that on the screen for you. It's in your notes. But this is point number two of our doctrinal statement. And look at how, how they wrote it here for us. We believe that God has spoken in the scriptures, both the Old and the New Testaments, through the words of human authors. As the verbally inspired word of God, the Bible is without error in the original writings, the complete revelation of his will for salvation, and the ultimate authority by which every realm of human knowledge and endeavor should be judged. Therefore, it is to be believed in all that it teaches, obeyed in all that it requires, and trusted in all that it promises. This book is absolutely necessary if we are to call ourselves a follower of Jesus Christ. Now, here's where I want to put up another verse here that summarizes maybe this, really this whole doctrinal point from 2 Timothy chapter 3. Paul is writing to Timothy. He's mentoring this young man. And look how he writes. But it's for you. It'd be Timothy. Continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it. And how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is breathed out by God 
and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God, who could put woman of God, may be complete, equipped for every good work. Now, I underlined a key statement there. Scripture is breathed out by God. Now, understand how critical that is in our day and age. Let me give you the first application, though, for this morning, just to give you a few this morning. Number one, to grow toward maturity includes believing that this book is from God. To grow, this book comes from God. But understand this, the enemy, Satan, he works overtime to try to discredit the Bible. He's looking to take the words and twist them and for people to use them. He wants nothing more than people to reject this book. So here's where I need to dig a little bit surrounding this idea of the Word of God. Because realize this, the Evangelical Free Church believes that this is the Word of God. There are other churches, other denominations who hold a radically different view than what we hold. And you got to catch this, there is a growing divide in our world today. Of, of people that would say this is God's word and they would believe a different, uh, something very different. Now I want to give you an illustration because in essence, and for lack of a better words, there's a liberal approach to scripture and there's what I would call the conservative approach or an orthodox or fundamental uh, in terms of its understanding. But years ago, there was a couple that had come when I was at my previous church in Baxter couple came in and they were being interviewed for membership at the church. And the question was thrown to them and something like this. You know, why did you move from that church that you were attending to our church at the time? And um, they ended up, the wife kind of piped up first and she said something like this. Well, we ended up meeting with the pastor of their former church. And, and he basically said something like this is that he really didn't believe that the miracles, that all of those miracles occurred in the scriptures. And they, their mouths kind of dropped open when they had heard that. And he went on to explain it really wasn't necessary. It wasn't all that important. Now, what would you say if I said that? You'd be going to the elders and, and I'd be out of a job, okay? But folks, there are churches in our culture, many of them, that differ greatly in terms of the doctrine of the understanding of the scriptures. And I want to give you, just for information, because you need to be able to understand people. When we talk about ministry to people, you need to understand what many people believe about the Bible of today. So I'm just going to quickly walk through some unorthodox views of scripture. The first one is this. The Bible is not God-breathed and has heirs. The belief is this, is that Scholars who teach at seminaries and clergy determine the meaning of what's really true and what's not true. See, the belief that the Bible is inspired by God, they would kind of say, you know, it's just, that's for the naive people. 
They don't know better these days. But let me give you another one. Actually, the virgin birth of Christ is a mythological teaching, but the, the, the key is this last fragment. It's just not necessary. They don't view it as necessary, uh, Jesus rising from the grave. Third one, Jesus did not rise from the grave in bodily form. The fourth one, Jesus was a good moral teacher, but his followers and their followers have taken liberties with the history of his life. His life has been distorted in the Bible. Now, in an extreme way, and again, there's nuances to this. I've got to be careful because some hold a few, some hold many of these. But it's the understanding that there was other writers and that the apostles and the writers of the scriptures probably didn't write the Bible. It came through other means. Matter of fact, um, I was growing in my faith in the, in the early 80s, and I was part of a group of guys. There were some sem- guys that were going to seminary back then that I'd meet with every week. And they told me about a seminar that was taking place, and it was like 1985, um, called the Jesus Seminar. And anybody ever heard of that phrase? Um, maybe one or two of you have. Well, the Jesus Seminar was basically this. They had gotten together a whole series of scholars, of seminary professors, and they look, began to look at the Gospels. And if you have a red-letter Bible... I understand that the, the red means that Jesus had spoken those words. Well, they got together in Berkeley, and eventually about 200 guys got together. And what they went through is they were looking at the phrases, how it was phrased, and they were deciding whether Jesus wrote these or somebody else wrote them. And then they would vote. Yes, these are supposed to be a part of the Bible. These are not supposed to be a part of the Bible. Like voting decides it in some way. Do we understand the challenge in that? Let me give you another one. Hell is not real. Man is not lost in sin. There's a universalism, they believe. It's, they're not doomed to judgment, a future judgment without a relationship with Christ through faith. See, the inherent idea that, that a loving God would send people to hell, they're going, why? N- now, I understand, I don't know what they do with some of the scriptures. And for example, John 14, 6, where Jesus says, you know what? No one comes to the Father but through me, that I am the way. I am the way. Um, a number of years ago, I was teaching on this issue. It's probably 10 years ago. And I remember going to some of the church websites of some of these denominations, and I couldn't find doctrinal statements as to actually what they believed. Realize that. Let me give you another one. Most of the human authors of the Bible are not who they traditionally believe to be. We attribute the first five books of the Bible to Moses. And they would go, no. Daniel, for example, they would say that there was two authors to that. And the reason for that is they're saying because things were actually happening at the end of the book, there must have been a second author that experienced this and then added it to back to Daniel. So they believe that there was actually two authors that wrote the book. Let me give you another one, the last one, though. Maybe the most important one. 
they would believe this, the most important thing for man to do is to love his neighbor. There is a great weight, and folks, it is a great command of God. But you have to understand, as they're talking this language, there's a nuance to it, in that the emphasis is about loving so society would be getting better and better and better. The Great Commission isn't the issue there. See, is that they're looking to transform society, but what happens is, and the idea of loving, who decides what is loving? They do not look at this as a lens of saying, this is loving, this is not loving. Matter of fact, what they've done is they've set aside the doctrine of depravity. If you don't know that word, depravity means this, is that we're born into this world with a natural bent not to move toward God. And that's the Holy Spirit, and as we walk in this world, that something has to change, and we have to be drawn to him, and we have to respond to him. But in that sense, see, their universalism just says this, is that you can teach somebody to get better and better and better if you just emphasize love, love, love. Well, here's where it gets sticky. Because my goal is not to name churches or denominations or necessarily throw rocks at them. That's not helpful. But I've come to believe this, that many people in these churches have no understanding of what their church even believes about the scriptures. And I've bumped into a number of people over the years with this. They don't, believe, they don't even understand what their pastor believes about it. And there was this couple that we interviewed years ago. But here's where it's awkward. How do we present these people that have this understanding or no understanding of Scripture? How do we present them complete or mature in Christ? What are we to do? And how about the people in your families, in your work settings, in your circle of friends? Is this an issue that's important? Is the word of God important? Well, here's where it leads, I think, to another application surrounding the word of God, to present others mature in Christ. Number two, I said it this way. Maturing in our faith and helping other people mature in their faith demands that we get serious about God's word. I don't know if you realize, but the stats on the number of people who attend Bible-believing churches like ours, it's going down in terms of people reading their Bibles. And there's not that much difference between a church who reads their Bibles and for those that attend the church that really doesn't emphasize the Bible, it's not that much difference in the day-to-day lives of people. Folks, this book is important. If you're an older person, if you're a teenager, can I encourage you this week, pull it out. Start reading it. If you don't like to read, listen to it. Get somebody with you that will hold you accountable to do it. Matter of fact, I want to put up a site on the, on the 
give you a website that you can go to, www.biblegateway.com. Tons of resources. It can give you reading plans if you want to go at this pace, if you want to go at this pace. There's tools in there. Um, there's audio Bibles with different versions you can listen to. And one of the things that I try to do as often as I can is when I read Scripture, um, I like to listen to it at the same time that I read it. Something changes when you actually create a second sense with it. You're going to pick up some things that oftentimes you won't pick up when you listen to it and read it at the same time. So the goal this week, I would encourage you, begin to read your Bibles. It is critical in that. But i got to step back here because in terms of presenting others complete in Christ, there's an important question that I need to dig around a bit in because what is our response to people who have embraced a liberal theology concerning the Bible? See, what do we do with our friends and family that don't value the Word of God or maybe even their church just doesn't think it's all that important? Now, what would Paul think? Would he just say this, well, you know, that's what they believe. We believe different, so let's just not say anything. Do we really think that that would be Paul's stance? Because, see, I think here's the challenge. The default setting is that we tend to want to avoid any conversations with people on the, on the scriptures. Let's just not rock the boat. Let them believe what they want. Hope for the best. I'm not going to ask them what church they go to. Then I won't know. I don't have to deal with it. But the question comes back, how do we present them mature or complete in Christ? Well, it, it points to an application where we need in our attitudes. And number three, I said it this way. If they have an inadequate understanding of the scripture, do not view them as the enemy. See, when someone starts talking about, you know, miracles in the Bible, oftentimes the first response is to jump toward a, an attitude of hostility and I'm going to prove you wrong. But, and again, this is where we, we need patience. And matter of fact, I, I think this way, we need compassionate concern and we need to earn the right to actually engage them in a conversation. I want to show you another passage how important this is centered in the Word of God. Look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 1. Finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you are doing, that you do so much more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. Then in the next verses, it gives a whole bunch of instructions. And understand these instructions were written down. They are a part of the word of God. They, they, came, they came to be part of the canon of scripture. Then he comes to verse 8. Therefore, whoever disregards this, what's this? The instructions disregards not man, but God, who gives his Holy Spirit to you. What's he saying? Here's a hard truth. Those who reject the word of God are rejecting God himself. And that's a hard biblical reality. 
But catch this, the rejection of God and his word needs to drive us to compassion, empathy about their rejection of God and the word. Because we want them to know the truth that Jesus is who he is, that the word can be trusted. See, it needs to begin by us seeing the needed change in our lives to earn the respect and the right so that we can begin to engage them in conversations about this issue with gentleness. Not rejecting them because they hold to a different view. See, the starting point of conversations is not about proving them wrong. And for too often, that's what the church has gone toward. I'm just going to show them, tell them, this word is right, and if you reject, you know, and we, we kind of write them off. But look at John, 4, uh, John 1, verse 14. I want to point to something out here. And the word became flesh. Here's the word is Jesus. And dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, the glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of what? Grace and truth. See, he demonstrated incredible truth, but he also gave grace. See, the demand people that don't believe what we believe about the scriptures need grace. They are not the enemy if they believe different. And we are called to help them, to love them in such a way where we gently show them through our love that the word is relevant in our own lives. And that's where it needs to become relevant to us. That it's changing us, that it sees a change in our lives. But let me give you another application I think that applies to us here as well. Number four, we need to believe that the scriptures and the gospel will be used by the Holy Spirit for change. Now, what's that saying here? It's this. Do we believe that this book is so important that God can use this book to take the scales off people's eyes? Look at Hebrews 4.12. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of the soul, of the spirit, of joints and marrow, and the discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Catch this. When the Holy Spirit is working around the, this book called the Bible, that it can begin to open up their heart. It, it can take the scales off their eyes. Let me show you another one. Romans 1.15. So I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. Verse 16, for I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. See, the word and the gospel of Jesus Christ has inherent power that can make a difference in people's lives. Do we believe that? I was at a, this conference I was at this last week was called the Church and Culture Conference. And he reminded us there one of the things that's going on in the Middle East. And in the Middle East right now, there is lots of Muslims that are coming to faith. And one of the pieces to this is that for some of these Muslims, what God is doing, he's working through dreams. People are having dreams and almost nightmares about this guy, Jesus. 
And what is happening is these people that are trying to figure out why are these dreams going on, and they're forced to go seek the Western culture. Do you have a Bible? Because we think it's connected, these dreams are connected to Jesus. And they start digging in the scriptures, and they come to faith. It's one of the nuances of what's taking place in the Muslim world. The words can't be spoken publicly there. And God's actually using dreams of people to draw them to the scriptures, and they're changed by the Holy Spirit. Now, I want to give you a couple pieces to this conference because it plays into where we're going here today and even next week. I'm going to show you the topics that we covered at the conference. It was really an interesting uh, few days for me. The the first session was the nuns, Generation Z, and the new post-Christian world. Um, Second one, apologetics in a post-truth world. I don't know if you realize that we live in a post-truth world. Absolute truth is basically gone. And then trends in 2020. That one was a really scary one for me because you're talking about they were dealing with robotics and actually machines that are beginning to think and decide morality. And you go, wow. And then the last one is preventing every church's three natural tendencies, getting older, becoming outdated, and turning inward. Um, Next Sunday night, we're going to do a leadership learning community. And I'm going to introduce some of the stuff in this conference at that night because it fits with those last two chapters in the book. So I'd invite you to really put your calendar, mark your calendars and come to that. But we talked about the Generation Z. If you are under 25 right now, you are part of Generation Z. You are the largest, largest generation in history. Larger than the boomers. And it's interesting some of the changes that are taking place when you talk about presenting people complete or mature in Christ as it comes to Generation Z. Now here's one of the concepts that we were wrestling with at the conference. I'm going to put a line up on the screen here and you'll see 1, 3, 8, and 10. And let me explain it this way. In the 60s and the 70s, where I grew up, is that the vast majority of people believed God in a God. They believed actually that this was God's word. They actually believed in a right and a wrong. The absolute truth was real for them. They knew that there was a transcendent truth. And when you, if you were to label them on a scale of how ready were they to hear and respond to the gospel... Back then, they were eights. They were eights. Eights and nines, maybe. They knew what the missing ingredient for many of those people is they really didn't understand John 3, the need to be born again. That transformational work that Jesus said as he's talking to Nicodemus in John 3, lest a man be born again. But listen to this. The people... In those back then, 60s, 70s, even early 80s, when you started talking about the Bible, when you started talking about things, it made sense to them. And the speaker made this statement to us. He said, back then, if they had Twitter now back then, okay, you could tweet the four spiritual laws and people would bow and put their faith in Jesus because they were ready to hear it. 
Now, our culture is not an eight. For maybe some in 50s and 60s and 70s, but now our culture, it's more like three and four. Because kids are growing up without any understanding of the Bible, any understanding of absolute truth. They just don't understand in a God out there. They don't even hear about it anymore, many young people. Matter of fact, I was having lunch at the, one of the lunches. Um, a guy from Charlotte actually was uh, there, uh, a pastor there. And I, I just said, what's the spiritual tone of Charlotte? And he said this. He said, it's changing dramatically. He said, used to be a number of years back that we were an eight in Charlotte. And he said, now, three and a half. And he gave some reasons as to why it's really moving in that direction. But here's, here's the challenge when we look to present people complete in Christ. Evangelism and the gospel is now a process. It's not a one-time event. Do we catch this? See, understanding the word of God is now a process it's not a one-time conversation. It's why revivals don't really work well anymore. Events that we invite people to 30, 40 years ago, they were ready to receive Jesus. Now, they don't even understand Bible. What's the Bible? Christmas? What's Christmas? There's kids out there that don't know what Easter's about. So you understand the change and what has to happen if we're going to present people, and especially younger people, complete in Christ, we need to earn their respect. So we can speak and earn the right to even talk about the Bible with them and talk about the nature of absolute truth and get into a relationship with them so that we don't have to defend the Bible, we can answer the questions in terms of who they are. See, for 45 on up, there's a different category. And you understand that's where evangelism is training. And we're going to have a class in a few weeks toward the end of the month. We're going to talk about what's called walk across the room. What does it mean to, again, build a relationship with the people that are in our lives? What's it going to take for especially younger students and younger kids? It's going to be building a relationship with them. We have to build the relationship to know where they're at. Are they at a one? Are they at a four? Are they at a six? Because how we present them complete in Christ will have to change. It will have to change. We have to become much more discerning in presenting them complete in Christ. Now, the speaker also pointed out one thing that was good to hear. He said this. He has great hope for Generation Z. He is not discouraged by it at all. He's done a ton of research in this area. And he said this, they don't have the trappings that the old people have, the preconceived ideas. They're starting from more of a neutral place. And he said they're profoundly spiritual in that they understand there's a spirit world out there. They believe it. And they're going, he said, it's an opportunity that's going to be presented to the church in years ahead. But here's where, for us, presenting each other complete in Christ, 
How does the scriptures fit in? We first have to own it. God has to allow it to, to penetrate our lives so he changes us where we're becoming gentle, grace-filled. We have the spiritual wisdom to build a relationship in such a way where we can actually talk and begin to answer the harder questions that they have. The church, understand for Generation Z, they have an, we haven't answered the questions well for them. How do you get evil? What about the social? What about these social sins? How are we going to deal with that? We haven't done well in answering the deeper questions that they're actually asking. i got to quit this week. How about this? Dust off your Bible. Or, or maybe if you have electronic or your phone, you need to wipe that screen really clear. Turn up the light. Figure out how to highlight on that electronic Bible. How to underline if you use a normal Bible. But what if we began to soak up the scriptures and allow the word of God that he gave us, this is his word, it's got to penetrate within here. If we want to become effective disciples of Jesus Christ, the word of God has to become important. No word, no spiritual maturity. It's got to change us first. And it gives us a platform to build relationships with people. Let's stand and pray.